The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I think I'm on, right? Great. So, so tonight I have in mind that I want to talk about practice. Practice. And the idea I'd like to, to begin with is the idea of mindfulness of practice. If we think of it as an object of mindfulness, it might help kind of get into the mode of what I want to talk about. So back 50 years ago or so, when I first started reading Buddhist texts, I was reading a bunch of, uh, I was reading a number of books by Zen teachers. And they went on and on about practice and sitting and on the cushion and off the cushion. And I just read all of these things until they got to something that was philosophically interesting to me. And, and I enjoyed the books and incorporated what they were saying. But this whole notion of sitting and practice, I truly didn't know what they meant. I just didn't know what they meant. And so I continued reading Buddhist books for a very long time. And and maybe a little over 20 years ago, I decided, uh, I read a book. I read a book by Ken Wilber. And he said, unless you meditate, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. So don't worry about it. And I thought, well, that's arrogant. (laughs) And then I thought, well, I could try it. I could just, I could try to meditate and see what happens, which was his advice try and see what happens. And uh, so I began meditating on my own, trying to figure it out. I read this book, and I read that book, and I read the other book, and I mushed it all together. And then finally, I stumbled into one of Gil's intro classes down at the, the Quaker place in South Palo Alto. And I took his course, and I started sitting. Now, At that point, I still wasn't saying on the cushion, off the cushion, practice sitting. I was just, you know, doing meditating, mindfulness meditation. And now, what I understand about those books I read is truly nothing like I imagined when I read those books. Because now I have my own experience with meditation with sitting, with being on the cushion. I have my own meaning about what it means to be on the cushion and practicing off the cushion. And I have this notion about practice. Okay, so now I've incorporated this notion about practice into my life. But it occurs to me that at a certain point, it becomes kind of automatic. You know, you say, oh yeah, I'm practicing, I'm sitting. And the question is, is it the fresh, evolving practice that it began as? How does, how does it, what is the state of my practice? How do I take stock of it? Not how far have I gotten, how easy is it to meditate, none of those things. But really, what, what is my practice? What is my practice? Why am I practicing How am I practicing? What difference does it make? What is it about? So part of what brought this up for me was was reading a 
a talk by Fra Ajahn Suwat Suvako. It was translated by Tan Jeff, and it was a collection of five talks. And the beginning of one of them went like this. Get yourself ready to meditate. Sit in a composed way and examine your mind. Using your mindfulness and discernment perceptively. I read that again. Sit in a composed way and examine your mind. Using your mindfulness and discernment perceptively. Setting the mind in the right direction is something very important. If the mind isn't set in the right direction, its thoughts and opinions won't be right. It's like a tree leaning to one side. When it falls, it'll fall in the direction that it's been leaning. And further, he says, when the mind is set on being peaceful, when it's set on meditating, it tends toward peace. It tends toward seclusion. This is what gives rise to concentration, to mindfulness and discernment, and ultimately to the knowledge of release, step by step. All of this comes from setting the mind in the right direction. So that got me thinking, what does it mean to set the mind in the right direction? What does it have to do with how I meditate? You know, I just sit down and I start following the breath. But in fact, that's not what I do. In fact, when I pay attention to it, I do set my mind. I have a notion about what it means to practice, and I have a notion about what it means to meditate. And and because it's been primarily, not exclusively, but primarily a pleasant experience, when I head toward my cushion, I'm aware of a sense of, ah, ah, I'm, ah. There's this a kind of settling in that happens. Even if I'm agitated for just that moment, there's that settling in feeling of, oh, okay, now I'm going to do this. When we adopt a practice of any sort, we kind of, we have, we set up a goal. You know, if, if you're going on a diet or you're stopping smoking or you're taking up marathoning, you have a goal. Okay, my goal is this. And then you put together a plan and it's full of intentions and techniques. And, and then there's the process of developing the skill and executing your plan and sticking to the plan and meeting your goals, hopefully. And then there's the difficulty of staying with it. The effort that it takes, the perseverance it takes. You know, and then after a while, it just seems kind of rote and, you know. I'm having a lot of trouble right now with the prescribed resistance training I'm supposed to do, right? I am so resistant to resistant training, I cannot tell you. But... You know, all of my medical advisors tell me how important this is and that I have to do this. And so I'm constantly restarting that process. In the same way that I'm constantly restarting when I sit down to meditate and I'm following my breath and I wanders away and I bring myself back. So it occurs to me that this is true of practice in general. That we kind of wander away from practice. We wander away from our intentions And we just sort of, you know, we do it or we don't do it or we kind of fall into disuse. 
or we, we fall into habit, and that it's useful to consider what is my practice? What constitutes my practice, and why am I doing it? And then what, what keeps me on the path, what keeps me practicing whatever my practice is? We start out with such optimism, with hopes, plans, dreams, as we do on any journey. And then things slow down. Hmm. Now, I recently took a road trip, and the first half of the trip was just glorious. The last half of the trip was a slog. I was tired. I just wanted to be home. Nothing seemed to be right. And part of what was different was just my attitude. It was was the way I started each day out. How we set our mind has a lot to do with what our intentions are, what our goals are, what our effort is like. If I set my mind to say, okay, I'm going to do this. This is my problem with resistance training, by the way. I'm going to do this. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do this. It's a real struggle. I don't do it because I like it. But one thing that happens when I do it for a while, consistently I have, what I discover is it's not so difficult once I get going because I feel better. And this is one of the things that motivates us on the way. We start out on the practice, this practice of meditation, this practice, whatever it is for you. And one of the things that keeps us going is we feel better. We like, we like what happens. We like what happens to our hearts and minds. And then we kind of forget. You know, practice is not a thing. It actually is not if this, then that. If I do this, then this is what's true. It's much more of a process practice. Practice is something that's always evolving, always changing. And it changes as we understand it more. It changes as our experience changes us. Because our spiritual practice is so integral to the expression of our deepest desires and our deepest intentions, even if we don't know what they are. One of the things that may not be clear to us is what our intentions are. I say that with total humility. My intentions over time have changed. They're still in the same general category. Same general category. I I wish to be an open-hearted person. But what that means to me has definitely changed. And the road to being an open-hearted person has had many turns and shifts and points of attention. Sometimes it turns out you have to slightly change your attention to know what your intention is. <laughs> you have to say, well, how close is that to what I'm really thinking, to what I'm really feeling, to what's really coming up? How close is it? 
And if we have a mindset about it, which is that it is changing, then we're less likely to be judgmental about it. We're less less likely to say, well, as soon as I get really good at this, I'm going to be X. As soon as I really know how to meditate, I'm going to be able to concentrate immediately and just go into a jhana state and be free of all my toxins. Life is going to be wonderful. And that's not really the way it works. What happens is we start seeing more clearly. We start making different decisions. We start doing things slightly differently because we're changing. And the overall goal, my goal, of being an open-hearted person is still out there. But the route to it is through a few other intentions that turn out to be really important. So the ability to manage our intentions is related to our ability to be flexible. If I'm so wedded that that this is the only way it can be done, I'm kind of setting myself up for a lot of disappointment because I'm not taking into account the fact that I don't really know what I'm talking about when I first get started. I don't really know how this is going to evolve. I don't really know how it's going to express itself. So I was speaking with someone lately who who also has as a goal that he, he wishes to be a kind, compassionate person. And he does a lot of kind, compassionate things. And it's very important to him that he minds, that he is mindful of this. And recently, he's been under a lot of stress because of other things happening in his life, and he lost it. This is how he described it to me. He lost it with his wife, who dearly loves, cares about, but he lost it. And so his solution was, he felt very badly about this. He felt this, this made him a failure at his deepest intention. He felt guilty for hurting someone that he cared about. He was very hard on himself that he was so disappointed in himself. And so he felt that what he needed to do was to develop a thicker skin so that he didn't react so much to what she had to say. And I said, oh, no, don't do that. (laughs) Oh, please don't do that. How do you become a compassionate person if you shut down your sensitivity? How can you do that? You can't do that. Part of what mindfulness does is make us hypersensitive. It makes us much more likely to see things, to feel things, to experience things. Because what we do in mindfulness is we bring ourselves into this moment as opposed to thinking about the past where we can create what's going on and the future where we can fantasize about the world that we want. It brings us right into this moment where we have to pay attention. And we're much more likely to actually feel things. Oh, ouch. Hey, that's great, right? So the issue is, what do you do if you leave yourself open to experience? You are also leaving yourself open to the emotional consequences of those experiences. So where are you? Are you afraid of your experiences? Do you dull 
your receptors because you're uncertain about how you might react or because you have a fear of hurting or being hurt? Does this change the way you practice? How does this evolve within the context of your practice? Where are your edges? I'm not saying go find them. I'm saying notice them because they're there. You don't have to go looking for trouble. Don't have to go looking for it. When we focus on that place of disappointment in ourselves, I wish I hadn't done that. Oh, how could I have done that? There are a lot of possibilities. And one is that we're we're measuring ourselves against some sort of ideal. And uh, that's never going to work, actually. And it's putting us in the mind space of disapproval, aversion, unhappiness, darkness, shadow. How can you be other than unhappy when you're looking only in the place of disappointment and dissatisfaction? If, on the other hand, you say, ooh, that was so not my intention. My intention was way over here. Now you're not telling yourself the story about how bad you are and what should have happened. You're saying, oh, this is how I want to be. And even just speaking about it, you can feel the difference between the, oh, that was so bad, and my intention is so much better. And there's a a lightness that just thinking about it, just considering it, introduces to you. This is part of the attitude with which we practice. I am not saying that bad behavior is okay. Bad behavior is not okay. But guilt is not very useful. It doesn't incline the mind toward lightness, peace, moving forward, the intention of your practice, the intention of my practice. In addition to being a tool for resetting and shifting your attention, it's also the intention can be a tool for moving forward. Oh, yeah, this is my intention. You know, it's like if you're on a diet, you have a series of rules about what you can eat and what you can't eat. And that's what you do. And then, you know, you go have a donut. And that is not on the diet. And you can say, oh, that was terrible. Then the next day you have another diet, another donut. And the day after that, you have two donuts. And you say, oh, screw it. It's not working anyway. This is not useful. But if you say, oh, I didn't need that donut. You know, I can do this. I know I can do this. I'm just not going to keep eating donuts. It's easier the next day to not eat the donut. Because you know you can. You know you can skip it. You remind yourself that you can. And our practice is like that. We remind ourselves that we can be kind. We're not patting ourselves on the back or saying what we did was wrong or right. Okay. What we're saying is, I know how to be kind. 
And that is my intention. And we reinvigorate our intention. We realign ourselves with our intentions. This induces in us the need to see through delusion. Because it's pretty easy to talk yourself into seeing something a different way because it feels better. But that doesn't really, you know, you know when you're lying to yourself. But you don't always know when you're deluded. That's what deluded means, not seeing clearly. So there is a, a task of mindfulness that is saying, okay, what else is here? So in the, let's take the case of um, uh, 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 this guy who said he lost it. Okay, so when you, when you find yourself in, in an emotional uproar, something that accompanies an emotional uproar is all the hormonal response, the adrenaline going through your body. There's a lot of energy in your body if it's a, an anger emotion. If it's a, a sadness, grief emotion, there's a real sinking, a sinking of the energy. So one thing that you can do in that situation when you recognize, oh, this is out of control, is you say, I'm hot, or I'm freezing, or I'm really in the dumps. You you notice that emotional content. You notice the energy of that content. Not just the idea about it, but you notice the energy. And you shift your attention to the energy. Not the story about why you're sad or why you're angry or whatever that is about. But shift your attention to the energy and, and realize I have to do something about this energy. This energy is here. It's a focus on what is here. It's a focus on seeing clearly. There's a lot of energy here. There's no energy here. Of recognizing that and its role that that is what has to be managed, that energy. Not the story, not the content, but the energy. That takes both mindfulness and discernment. You have to see it. You have to tell. You have to know it's different than what came before. You have to say, oh, there's a lot of energy here. And if your mind is tangled up with the story, that's not what's happening your mind is tangled with the story, you're really not conscious of that energy. Even when you hear yourself yelling. So I've been there fairly recently, heard myself yelling, and knowing I was just tired. Really, really tired. And here was all this energy. And what was I going to do? My poor husband had done nothing, really. Nothing. And I was yelling. I wasn't actually yelling at him, you're doing something wrong. I was just yelling. And so I said, you know what? I'm really tired. I'm really, really, really tired. Until I convinced myself that the problem was not him, it was me. And then I went and washed my hands. Which was one way of getting rid of some of that energy. That just didn't have any place to go. So while I regretted yelling at my husband, it wasn't because I was a bad person. And I'm really sorry it happened. 
and I've resolved not to let it get that far the next time, but I'm not condemning myself for it, even though it's not behavior that I like, wish to see again. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time making it the focus of my attention. The focus of my intention is paying attention to what's going on in my body so that I notice it before it gets too big, before it becomes something that explodes. To be compassionate, we have to be aware of what's going on with us. We have to see really clearly What's happening with us? And we have to be aware of what's going on outside of us. The first thing is awareness to compassion. We can't have a movement of the heart if the heart's bottled up doing something else. There's no room there. So if we take something like right speech, and we have a formula for right speech, right? Everybody knows this formula. Is it true? Is it uh, useful to speak this? Is it kind to speak this? Is it uh, timely? Is it time to speak this? Okay, this is a nice formula for, for wise speech. When we're really excited, not all of those things, we're not capable of analyzing all those things but maybe one of those things. If we're, in the, if we're in the habit of thinking about right speech in that way, then the habit may save us. And maybe it's enough to just remember, I want to be kind to my husband. So even if I'm angry, I can also hold, I want to be kind And the struggle becomes a different struggle. It becomes the difference between aversion, ill will, and the desire to be kind, the intention to be kind. This is how the intention can be useful in just walking through life. Okay, okay, okay. I I really want to be kind. So then there's just this much space to notice what's really going on. Is the problem that I'm not being seen. How can you be saying, how can you be talking about that when I'm tired? Or I need to be right. Seeing that tendency to need to be right. Seeing the, the, the injustice of being dismissed. Oh, that's not important. Not being paid attention to. Seeing that is a clue that we can use for refining our intention. So I may want to be kind, but the real problem is, name your poison, uh, I don't want to be dismissed. Don't dismiss me. I'm tired of being dismissed. Now, if that's the real thing that's happening there, my desire to be kind may not intersect with that. And maybe what I need to do Maybe my intention needs to be refined to something like be particularly diligent around your fear of dismissal. 
Notice when it arises. Maybe that's the intention that really will feed my practice now. See, look there, shine the light there. Not because it's what comes up all the time, but because I haven't been seeing it. I haven't been noticing it. And maybe when I notice it, I'm much more willing to make wise choices about it. I can say, okay, this is a fear of dismissal. Nobody's dismissing you. They're not even thinking about you. (laughs) Oh, oh, (laughs) right? Understanding clearly involves seeing clearly. Refining our intentions involves seeing clearly and asking what else is here, what's happening. One of the keys is to see all of this as a process and not a fixed pattern. When we think of practice as being really fluid as opposed to, well, I sit for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon and I practice loving-kindness meditation at this time and I do, and that's it. And it's working really well. And there's no life to the practice. There is the practice, and it has virtue, and it's very skillful. But the engendering life of the practice may be missing. Not necessarily, but it may be missing. So shining the light of mindfulness on what is the practice, how am I viewing the practice, Does the practice enliven me? What is my practice? What are the types of meditation I do? Do I do only one kind of meditation? I do mindfulness meditation. Oh, what kind of mindfulness meditation? Well, I follow my breath. Well, I kind of do this open awareness thing. Okay, so when I first started, I did following the breath very religiously use a a word. (laughs) And then after a while, I got kind of bored with that. So I started doing uh, open awareness kind of meditation. And that served me very well because it shifted the the emphasis from concentration type practices to more of a discernment insight type practice. I was very interested in what comes up, what comes up, what comes up. So, so that was the, that, the danger of that practice is you can become very unconcentrated. Now, there's a lot of flitting around when you're doing that kind of practice. And I did that for years. And then, you know, a few years ago, I decided to go back to really concentrating on following my breath. And I discovered a whole new aspect to my practice that I had been missing, a new aspect to my meditation that was very deepening for me. I didn't give up insight, but because I had the experience of the open awareness, insight-focused kind of meditation, when I did go back to more concentration practice, the, the experience was richer, deeper, changed. 
This is the value of looking at your practice and just seeing what it is and where it is and how is it feeding me or not feeding me and what, what is the energy of the practice. When we see what our triggers are, we know how to point our attention. We don't have to leave it the same. My understanding can help me modify my intentions. Then there's the question of, uh, am I doing, so am I doing the right practice? Is there energy in my practice? How much effort am I putting in my practice, really? You know, am I just sort of skating along, scooting along? Is there effort in my practice? Am I just sort of content, complacent? Well, you know, it feels pretty good. <laughs> as long as I keep meditating, life is pretty calm and stable. Is there, is there something I'm missing that a little shift, a little change in energy will lead to more productive seeing, a better understanding of where I am? How, how is that going to work? Am I forced meditating? I'm going to do it. This is my practice and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to spend all the time talking yourself into it and not enjoying any of the fruits. Remember, remember the first time you experienced a real sense of calm. That, that time when you really felt settled and at peace. Wasn't that a delight? How often do you feel that? The difference between the calm, everything's okay, and that real sweetness of settling in the stillness. Ah, just that stillness. Do you just sort of pass through that point and not even notice it anymore? Sort of like drinking your morning coffee and not smelling it. That sweetness is what keeps us practicing. Whatever it is, whatever's the source of sweetness in your practice, be sure you notice it. Don't lose track of it. What does it take to re-experience it? How do you energize your mind toward that? You say, what am I not seeing? What am I not seeing? May I see what I'm not seeing? Sometimes we have to just open our eyes and say, what else is here? I've only been looking here for a while. Is there still curiosity in your practice? What's going to happen? I especially experience this every time I go on retreat. I am terrified. (laughs) Because... Some of them have been pretty significant. You know, I discovered things that I had no idea were there. It arises out of that great stillness that you can reach on retreat. So how do I get in touch with that stillness in my everyday life? Because that's really interesting when that happens. And that 
that leads me to the appropriate intention, the appropriate way of practicing. As long as I'm spending time doing it, why don't I do it in a way that is opening for me, that helps me realize that deepest intention of being a person of loving kindness, of having an open heart. When I let it glaze over, I'm defeating my intention. Resist drifting. Check on your alertness, the alertness of your practice. You know, just refresh, refresh, you know, sort of squeeze of lemon. <laughs> Something that that adds a little piquancy to the the being with, the being with. This is the place of equanimity, actually. When we are allowing our practice to be in a place of now, not the way we started, not what it used to be, not what we planned for it, but just this. Despite what I may wish, this is how it is. This is how it is. May I see things just as they are. Just this. May I meet the arising and passing away of all things with equanimity and balance. Just this. Just this. We're blessed with this practice. It shouldn't be a burden. I'm not encouraging burdensomeness. I'm not encouraging that you go out and do homework. I'm suggesting that you look at your practice and see what its source of life may be and how to enhance that. That unfolding. As the Buddha said in his last words, be a light unto yourself. That light is a brightening, and it's a light that only we can shine on our practice. It's your practice. It's not my practice. It's not going to be the same. Nor should it be. It's your practice. How do you practice? What are you practicing? Why are you practicing? These are important questions to ask yourself. Where is your heart? Where is your mind? These are aspects of yourself that can shine the light on. How am I doing this? Why am I doing this? It's a taking stock, it's a being present. You know not where happiness lies. It's not a preordained moment. It just happens. Be awake. So those are my thoughts. I'm going to read you a poem. I, have, I had several I couldn't decide between, but I think this is the one I'm going to read you. <clears throat> No, not that one, this one. So hard to decide. 
So I'm going to read you Snow Geese by Mary Oliver. Oh, to love what is lovely and will not last. What a task to ask of anything or anyone. Yet it is ours, and not by the century or the year, but by the hours. One fall day I heard above me and above the string of the wind and sound I did not know, and my look shot upward. It was a flock of snow geese winging it, faster than the ones we usually see, and being the color of snow, catching the sun. So they were, in part at least, golden. I held my breath, as we do sometimes, to stop time when something wonderful has touched us. As with a match which is lit and bright, but does not hurt in the common way, but delightfully, as if delight were the most serious thing you ever felt, the geese flew on. I've never seen them again. Maybe I will someday, somewhere. Maybe I won't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when I saw them, I saw them, as though the veil secretly, joyfully, as through the veil, secretly, joyfully, clearly. Oh, to love what is lovely and will not last. What a task to ask of anything or anyone. Yet it is ours, and not by the century or the year, but by the hours. One fall day I heard above me and above the sting of the wind a sound I did not know, and my look shot upward. It was a flock of snow geese winging it, faster than the ones we usually see, and being the color of snow, catching the sun. So they were, in part at least, golden. I held my breath as we do sometimes to stop time when something wonderful has touched us. As with a match which is lit and bright but does not hurt in the common way, but delightfully, as if delight was the most serious thing you ever felt. The geese flew on. I have never seen them again. Maybe I will someday, some way, where maybe I won't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when I saw them, I saw them as though through the veil, secretly, joyfully, clearly. May you see your life, your practice, secretly, joyfully, clearly. Good night. Ah, I could ask. We have time. If you have questions or suggestions or objections or observations. Yes. I think you've been reading my mail. Your mail? <laughs> my mail. <laughs> it, it, I've been thinking about my practice lately, and my practice has evolved... I guess out of the necessity of life, into visiting with my demons and my anguishes and paying attention to what the dynamic is and noticing and, you know, cuddle the demons that need to be cuddled, you know. And it's, 
it's just from, well, in my case, you know, when things get crazy enough that you, you, you have to respond appropriately at some point. So, so maybe having crises is a lucky kind of thing, but, but it, I'm derailed from what I originally thought practice was to what practice is appropriate for me and where my life is right now. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, meeting, meeting what arises is really why we practice. It's, you know, the, the, why we call it practice. <laughs> so that when life happens, which hopefully it does, <laughs> we can meet it with some resiliency and some wisdom, which is what it sounds like you're doing. You know, the, uh, it's uncomfortable. And yet... And yet, it's gotten to the point that if an old demon that I haven't seen in a while pops up, it's like if shame raids his head. It's like instead of like, no, 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 it's like, oh, hi, there you are. I haven't seen you in so long. It's like you're really embarrassed right now. You are like going to crawl right under the couch. You, it's like yay! You know, it's it's that recognition, and I don't know. It's like if it's a gamification of meditating, or you know that you get this reward. It's like oh, I know you, I know you, I know you. You're crazy, aren't you? You know. You know, uh, um, <clears throat> there's a fine line between allowing and accepting, but a very significant one, and I'm pretty much in favor of the allowing one as opposed to the accepting one. And the difference for me is in allowing, it is allowing what is true to be true. Whether we like it or whatever our response to it is, this is how it is. That's the allowing part. We don't have to say, shame feels great. (laughs) But we can say, I'm not the shame. It's just shame. You know, we, we can remove ourselves from it. And then we can just see it and recognize it. And it becomes not us, but part of us in a way that is much more fluid and, and open. And it involves so much less suffering. <laughs> So I congratulate you on seeing and your sense of humor. (laughs) This is good. This is good. The lightness of that, seeing it and holding it lightly as opposed to grabbing it or pushing it away. Just, ah. Yeah. This is where equanimity lives. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments? So I've only been practicing for a few years now, um, but something that kind of confuses me 
is I've always approached my practices when I that when I sit, um, I just well I don't know what's going to come up and just be curious about what's going to come up. But then I hear a lot about well you need to have an intention before you sit, and so. Uh, the intention can be to be open to what arises. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to sit and be equanimous. It doesn't require you. The intention uh, is less of a goal and more of a, a willingness to, to let the process evolve. You know, it is... Um, to the extent that we say, I want a particular outcome, we're setting ourselves up. Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't, I may intend to get concentrated, but I can't make it happen. It isn't about control. And, and one thing you want to be careful of is setting an intention that just uh, requires you to exercise more control. Well, I have to control my life. That's not the role of intention here. The intention is is more one of uh, shining light on the on the process of being in this moment and arriving in this moment. and And what is that? What is that? Yeah. So, I applaud your approach to see what just see what happens. Anyone else? Okay. Good night, everyone. <laughs>